You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Hey, everyone. Good morning. Happy Wednesday to you. I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. Last week, I posted a video about tolerance where I was making the case for the old fashioned idea of tolerance as being actually a Christian virtue and what some of those differences were between uh, the more traditional or what I call the old fashioned definition of tolerance and what our culture now calls tolerance. So it's a good adjunct to what I'm going to be talking about this morning if you want to catch that video as well. In this video, I'm going to talk about another very common idea in our culture, and that is judging. And judging and tolerance are almost kind of twin sisters right now in our culture, a very commonly used words. And I wanted to spend some time this morning exploring the question, what does it mean to judge something or someone? So let's again start with our culture's definition of judging. And it really has come to mean just sort of accepting everything that people do. We can't even offer a difference of opinion about something or any sort of reasons or critique of an idea, not even critiquing a person, but just an idea or a thought or a behavior that is looked upon as being judging or judgmental. And the idea, the cultural value right now that is out there is that basically all decisions are morally equal and we shouldn't have really anything to say about that. And it seems like nearly every non-Christian knows uh, Matthew chapter seven, verse one. It's, it's like become the unbeliever's life verse. They love to quote it, put it on signs. Uh, judge, do not judge or you too will be judged or the good old King James version of judge not. Yes, lest you be judged. But we're going to look at this in some detail this morning and try to decipher what does Jesus really mean here? What is he saying? Is all judging a sin? Does Jesus say that we can never call someone's actions right or wrong or have a difference of opinion or that it'll destroy unity in the body of Christ if we have a difference? So we're going to be talking about these questions this morning on the live stream. Uh, the first point I want to make is that judging people is part of the fallen human condition. We all do it. And when we think about the idea of judging and tolerance, you know, a really good question to ask is, which is better, judging or, or tolerance? Well, it, it really sort of depends on what we're judging and what we're tolerating. I mean, if I'm tolerating someone abusing a child, that's not good. If I'm making judgments in a court of law about uh, a child racist, that could actually be a good thing. So there's, when we're thinking about the idea of judgments, I'm not sure that it's, it's helpful to say that all judging is wrong or that all tolerance is good. But yet it is, I think, the kind of judging that Jesus is talking about is part of the fallen human condition. We all have judgments. I mean, I'll bet you have a lot of judgments. Just watching this right now, you might even have some judgments about me. You might be thinking some thoughts about me. Maybe you don't like my earrings. Maybe you don't think I'm dressed up enough. Maybe 
you think I'm having a bad hair day or my lipstick's not dark enough. I mean, you might be having judgments about me. Maybe you don't like my tone of voice. Maybe you think I talk too loud or too fast. There's all manner of judgments that people have about other people and situations all the time. It is simply part of the human condition. If you walk into a room or a party or your small group at church, you're, you're automatically going to have thoughts in your mind about, oh, that person's too quiet or that person's too loud. That person's weird or she's staring me down or why did he do that? That was stupid. Who does that? We put labels on people. We have thoughts about people. And then we have thoughts about how we're going to react to people. Don't talk to that person. They're a jerk. Uh, don't talk to that person. They look weird. Uh, we have all manner of judgments. I'm sure people have made some judgments about you. Like think back to a common word that people use to describe you. Maybe they describe you as being intimidating or having a strong personality, or shy. People make judgments about us all the time. We all make judgments. We just have to be in kind of a reality that we all make judgments. We all have thoughts. We all measure each other up all the time. Just walk into a room of strangers and see what you notice in your thought life. I think that the, the universality of judging is just a part of the human condition. The second point I want to make is let's take a look at the context of Matthew chapter seven and verse one. We, we looked at Matthew seven, one, but let's read the whole kind of unit of thought, because that's really important when we're talking about scripture. Do not judge or you too will be judged for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, there is so much to unpack here in just these five very short verses. So I'm going to try to unpack some of these ideas. Now, in the broader context of Matthew chapter seven, which is where this, this falls in scripture, it's part of a larger thought unit called the Sermon on the Mount. And that's three chapters where Jesus goes into some detail of of how he wants his people to live in the kingdom of God. He's kind of describing God's best way to live. If you want happiness in your life, if you want things to go well for you, this is how to live. And God's best way for us to live is to be, to, to look at the heart, to look at the world, the way that he looks at the world. It, it is Best when we do right things because they come from our heart. They come from a, a true and authentic place of our mind and our will and our emotions all coming together to want to love God and love our neighbor. And the Sermon on the Mount is not a message about salvation. It doesn't tell us how to be saved. Okay. It's not the gospel. 
Rather, the Sermon on the Mount tells us how to live. It tells us how to love God and love our neighbor in gratitude, in response to the gospel. It is, it is a, um, what I call part of the law of the new covenant. It's part of a new covenant treaty. It's, it's the, some of the stipulations that God wants his people to be known by. He wants us to know how to live. And one of the key features of the Sermon on the Mount is that he says that his, the best way to live is that our religion be authentic, that it's not just about the appearance of religion. It's not just about the appearance of living a good life. It's about actually living a good life. It's not about um, just pretending to love your neighbor. It's about actually loving your neighbor, okay? And this is the kind of religion that God wants his people to engage in. So if we look at Matthew chapter seven, let's go back to that for just a minute. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged with the measure you use. It will be measured to you. This is so important because what what Jesus is saying here is that we all make up standards. We all make up standards about who's weird and who's strange and and whether or not we like someone's tone or their hair or their appearance or whatever. And we use that measure. It's like a measuring tape, as my, my pastor has said recently in a sermon. I think it's a really good illustration because it's exactly what Jesus says here, is that it's a measure. It's a way that we, uh, that we use to look at others and, and decide who's right or who's wrong. And it's often based on external appearances and impression a thought that we have about somebody just by looking at them or maybe having a couple of brief interactions with them. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? This is such a powerful word picture here because what we do all the time is if when we make mistakes and somebody brings the mistake to our attention, what do we do? We want to defend ourselves. We want to explain our motivations. We want to explain, um, well, you don't understand why I did this. And we give all these reasons for this defense that we have. But when we point out other people's problems, right, we're just, we're just doing it under the guise of, well, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you the truth in love. I'm telling you these hard things with a smile on my face, or sometimes we call it feedback, but what we're doing is we're, we kind of are really quick to notice what's wrong with somebody else or what we think is wrong with somebody else. And we start going in and going after that person. But then when somebody comes after us and our mistakes, it's like, well, let me give you my reasons. Let me explain. Okay. And so our tendency is to want others to give us the benefit of the doubt but we are slow to give other people the benefit of the doubt of thinking like, well, what's another possibility other than this person's odd or what's another possibility as to why this person is, is acting this way. Or I wonder what that's about for them, being curious about them, giving them the benefit of the doubt. So when we go back to Matthew seven here, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. And, and notice Jesus wants us to have a, a disposition about ourselves 
going into the conversation that I'm the one with the plank in my eye. And all of us have planks in our eye that we don't see. We call these blind spots sometimes in our culture. We all have blind spots. We have to assume going into the conversation, I have a plank in my eye. I have something I probably need to apologize for. I need to lead possibly with an apology. And and then what I, I'm supposed to see in my neighbor is only a speck. I'm only supposed to see in my neighbor a tiny thing. And I, I, I'm supposed to almost be hesitant because because I, I know myself well enough to know there's a plank in my eye. And so what this tells me is I, I'm supposed to be so careful about self-examination and other person examination. I shouldn't spend most of my time being other person focused on examining their faults and 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 trying to figure out what's wrong with them. Rather, I should start with, I wonder what I did to contribute to this situation. I wonder where I broke things. I wonder what I did in this situation. Okay. So that begins to fill out the picture a little bit of, of Jesus's best way to live. Now I want to look at a parallel passage in Luke chapter six. Now Luke chapter six provides a little bit more information and it's a parallel passage. It's the Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to look at Luke chapter six. Jesus says this, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaking together, running over will be poured into your lap for with measure, the measure you use it will be measured to you. Now notice how Jesus kind of fills this out a little bit more. He goes beyond just saying, judge not lest you be judged. He says he brings in condemnation and forgiveness and generosity. If we want people to be generous in their forgiveness with us, we must be generous in our forgiveness toward others. If we want people to be slow in their condemnation toward us, if we want to receive the benefit of the doubt, we must be generous with giving others the benefit of the doubt. Let's continue looking at Luke chapter six, because I think that this is an often neglected parallel passage that really helps to augment Jesus's words in, in Matthew chapter seven. We don't want to just focus on Matthew seven, one. We have to get the whole context and understand how Jesus's words about judging fit into his overall ministry and, and the arc of what he was teaching his disciples. So let's go back to Luke chapter six here and pick it up in verse 39. Jesus says, he also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. So what Jesus is saying here is that it's similar to the plank analogy. If we have a plank in our eye, we're going to be all walking around blind because we have this this plank and it's hard to, to lead one another. But we need a perfect teacher. We need a perfect judge. And that's Jesus, our rabbi. And so if we're enrolled in Jesus's rabbi school and we're learning his ways and we're walking in his steps, we will not ascend above him as our teacher, 
but we want to be fully trained by our teacher. And so that we don't have to walk around blind, trying to lead each other. Jesus's perfect vision and perfect judgment. And we want to use and incorporate his standards into how we live and how we think and, and how we feel and, and cause our thoughts, feelings, and opinions to conform to the way of our rabbi. Let's finish Luke six here. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the speck out of your eye. When you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye, you hypocrite first take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is so important. Again, we see this word picture from Jesus. So both of our gospel writers have, have preserved these words of Jesus. This must have been, a, an, I think, an oft-repeated teaching of Jesus that he spoke on many occasions. It was very important to the gospel writers to, to preserve this word picture that Jesus used. Now, what does all of this mean? It, it means that we want to judge according to the way we want to be judged. And now I want you to take a moment to consider the worst sins that you've ever committed. The worst, the thing that you, you, you don't want anyone to know about. How would you want to be judged by others if they found out? Would you want justice, which means to get what you deserve, to get punished? Or would you want mercy and grace and forgiveness? See, in, in God's kingdom, he knows that we have all sinned. We've all done things that we are ashamed of, and we all deserve judgment. But Jesus has come to take that judgment on himself. He has given us mercy. And so he wants us to give mercy to others. And so we want to, to be slow to judge because we have received mercy. The father has been so generous in his mercy toward us. And so based on that, Jesus wants us to be generous in our mercy toward others so that we will receive generous forgiveness. The third point I want to make is to look at another related passage, which is John chapter seven, verses 22 to 24. Now, this is in the context of Jesus healing and the, the religious leaders are fairly upset with Jesus about healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, yet because Moses gave you circumcision, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a, whole, a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. This is a very important parallel passage because if we only look at Matthew 7, verse 1, it sounds like Jesus is saying we shouldn't judge anything, but that's not what it's saying. Rather, it's, it's telling us that God's best way to live is that we judge rightly, that we judge fairly, that the measure that we use toward others, we have to know that it's going to come back. It's going to reflect on us. And so we want to judge not merely according to outward appearances. And yet, isn't that 
so often how our culture judges people. We judge based on beauty. We judge based on age. This whole saying right now in our culture of, okay, boomer, you know, that there's this idea that young people judge older people. We judge based on intelligence. We judge based on popularity. Someone is seen as almost more valuable because they have more followers. They have a bigger platform. And so they're a voice to be listened to. We call them influencers now in our culture simply because they have a large social media platform. So when Jesus calls us not to judge by merely outward appearances, these are standards in our culture that are very common in how we assign value to people. But this is not how Jesus wants his people to be known in the kingdom of God. He wants us to be known by looking at the heart, to see where people's hearts are, and to be generous in our forgiveness and our passion and what our culture says is giving each other the benefit of the doubt. But let's be honest for a minute. What is really annoying about Christians to non-Christians when it comes to judging? Like, why do so many non-Christians quote this verse? Why is judging, why has it become such a stumbling block to faith for so many of our friends and family who have either left their faith or have not yet come to faith in Christ. It's because of this very issue that Christians tend to reflect the world and make superficial judgments. We also judge in a superficial way. We do not judge rightly. We do not judge according to the proper standards. And our judgments as Christians are often not motivated by love. They're often not characterized by generosity. They're often not characterized by compassion. We assert our opinions as judgments on social media all the time. We assert our personal preferences as judgments. I like people who are this way. We might say, well, yeah, it's worldly to think about popularity as a basis for judging. But isn't it also worldly when we, we assign labels to people and say, well, I don't like to be around extroverts. I'm just an introvert. We judge people. We, we make our personal preferences a measuring rod or a standard of, of who we're going to love and who we're going to interact with and how we're going to, to be present with people. We assert our version of common sense as judgments. We take our, which common sense is really just an opinion. It's a preference, but we make those into a measuring rod as well. So when Jesus tells us to judge rightly, to not judge merely on external appearances, it's to look beyond that. It's to look beyond a few conversations with this person to really know them. See, to be known is a universal human longing. Everyone wants to be known. You want to be known. You want to have your heart seen. You want people to see your motivations. So also, we need to, to, to be in that posture too. And so often, I've tried to say it in front of my children. I'm trying to um, notice my judgments. I speak them out loud. Ah, I'm noticing. Right now, I'm judging this person. 
or here are my judgments. Sometimes I try to admit them to my husband. I have a judgment about this person. I judge them as, as being difficult. I judge them as being overly opinionated. It's hard for me to be present with them. And I've tried to say also in front of my children, um, I'm trying to be open to something different about this person. I'm trying to stay in life with this person so that I can doubt my judgments. That's what we want to do. We want to be in a posture of, okay, noticing our judgments, because like I said at the beginning, judgments is part of the universal human condition. We all do it, but we want to doubt our judgments. We want to be skeptical of our judgments. We want to be open to new data. Well, let's, let's wrap it up here with a fourth point and go to back to Matthew chapter seven, uh, where we started our conversation. And I want to move up in the context a little bit to the verses right before, or I'm sorry, right below, not up, down. A little later in chapter seven, where Jesus is starting to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of the father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name, drive out demons and perform miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. These are such hard verses, but I'm not going to unpack all the meaning behind this. But what I do want us to see here is that Jesus is the perfect judge. Jesus is the one who the father has selected to be the judge at the last day. And Jesus is the perfect judge for a couple of reasons. One is that he has taken all of our judgments on him. He has, he has taken all of our sins on him. Remember a few minutes ago, I said, think about the worst sin you've ever done. The one that you don't want anybody to know about. Jesus took that sin on himself. He took the judgment on himself for that action. So that you could receive mercy instead of judgment. So Jesus is the perfect judge because he has received the judgment. He's also the perfect judge because he can judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart and our soul. He sees everything. He sees our motivations. And so when we try to judge people in that way, when we try to judge people's motivations we put ourselves in the place of Jesus. It's we're putting ourselves in God's place. We're setting ourselves up as Jesus to judge others. Jesus is the only one who's qualified to judge because he's capable of judging perfectly. So he's the only one who's qualified to say who's going to go to heaven and who's going to hell He's the only one qualified to do that because he looks at the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, again, that's not to say there aren't some things that we as humans have been deputized to judge. And we can talk about that in a different video. But if we're talking about the eternal destination of somebody's soul, only Jesus has the right to judge that person. He's the only one who can judge everyone's sin. He's the only one who can see the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts. So we need to be careful about making judgment statements about where people are going. And I think in the eternal destination of their soul, because we see here in these verses in Matthew chapter seven, 
that some people can do outward actions that seem very righteous and holy, prophesy, drive out, cast out demons, perform miracles. On the outside, these things can look very righteous, but only Jesus can see the thoughts and intentions of our heart. So we have to be very careful in setting ourselves up as a judge of people's eternal destination. So in light of all of this, what is the main point of Matthew 7? How could I sum up? I would say this, Jesus's best life for you is to rest in your position as someone who has received mercy and invites others to be born again and receive that same mercy. How could we accurately rephrase uh, Matthew 7, 1? We, well, we could say it a number of ways. We could say, don't position yourself as the judge unless you're willing to be judged by the same standard. We might say, don't judge too quickly. We might say, don't be superficial in how you judge. Don't, don't just judge merely on external appearances. We might say, be careful how you judge. We might say, use the same criteria to judge others that you would want to be judged by. That's, those are kind of some of the, the thoughts and the thrust behind Matthew chapter 7 and as it's restated in Luke 6 and I think the connected passage of John chapter 7. So what's the solution or the cure to our sinful judging ways? Well, in the near context in Luke chapter 6, if we were to go back there, which again is, is a wonderful repeat of many of the themes from the Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6 says this, starting in verse 27, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Our posture as God's people, God's best life for us is to do things in a very counterintuitive way from the culture. We are to lead with long suffering. We are to lead with love toward our enemies. Jesus's best way to live is to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Now, how many of you can think about somebody right now in your life that you find difficult to love? Maybe it's somebody that you just, you see them at church and you think, I have nothing in common with this person in my small group and, and I find it difficult, them difficult to love or a coworker. Maybe it's somebody who's really hurt you personally. Maybe somebody who no longer walks in life for you. Isn't that the very person that we want to make up reasons for to judge? We want to make up a standard or a measure of why we don't need to interact with that person. But that goes against Jesus's words here in Luke 6, that, that, that he has created us in such a way that his design, his pattern for us to live the life that he designed us to live is actually to try to figure out how to love that person. Because when we were enemies from Jesus, he didn't judge us. He didn't just give us what we deserved. He invited us into the kingdom. He doesn't, he, he says all are invited. Even if you've, you've sinned, even though you've sinned against me, even though you've broken my holy laws, you're still invited into the kingdom. Why? Because he received that judgment, that punishment in our place. So everyone is invited into the kingdom. It's like a big party. 
When we're making our party list, we engage in judgments on who we want to invite and who we don't want to invite. And sometimes we have very superficial reasons for who we don't want to invite. But that's not how the God invites us to his party. He says everyone is invited to the party. It's a radical, radically inclusive invitation. But he doesn't just invite those he likes. He invites everybody. But what do we do? We, in order to get into Jesus's party, we must repent of our sins. We must believe that his death, that he took all of those judgments for us. And it has in turn given us mercy, forgiveness, and grace. So we want to do the same. We want to invite everyone to Jesus's party. And we want to love our enemies. We want to reflect that same mercy that we have been given so that other people can know that they can receive mercy too. But what has been eclipsed in our culture is repentance. And I think this is one of the hard aspects of talking to the non-Christian in our culture about judging because they want universal acceptance of our sin, their sins. Yes, all are invited to the party, but in order to get into the party, in order to get in the door, we must repent of our sins. And that is the hard work of learning how to judge ourselves. That we judge ourselves and we see our sinfulness. And that we see that, that we deserve punishment. That we have broken God's holy laws. So this is the, the kind of, we need three sort of steps here. Is, is to understand that our punishments all, have all been put on Jesus. He's, he's invited us to the party, but we have to repent of our sins. And then once we're in the party, we want to invite others to the party to receive the same mercy and forgiveness that we have received. So my friends, I hope today that you will go out and proclaim Jesus's generous and bold invitation that people can can understand that Jesus has received the punishment for their sins. He has received all the judgments. He's the perfect judge. And we can boldly proclaim that forgiveness and grace and mercy are available to everyone. Just like you and I have received, because when we're clear about who we are, when we're clear that we are saved sinners, when we're clear about that, then we can invite others who are in need of that same salvation. And we have absolute freedom to love everyone. And we have absolute freedom to be at peace with everyone. Even if they want to invite us into a conflict, we don't have to say yes to that invitation. People who are far from God need the same mercy that we received. We want to have mercy because we have received mercy. When we're clear about that we have received mercy, we want to share that same mercy with others. I do hope that you found this video helpful and that you'll consider sharing it uh, with your friends and family. Thank you so much for watching. Bye-bye. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.